Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Peter Spiegel. June 21st is World Giraffe Day. Are you standing tall for giraffe? Asks Stephanie Fennessy of Giraffe Conservation Foundation. Did you know that giraffe are in trouble? There are only 117,000 giraffe remaining in Africa, and there is only one giraffe for every four elephant in Africa. Giraffe have already become extinct in at least seven countries in Africa, and so the time to act is now. Recently, the Giraffe Conservation Foundation has funded and helped translocate four Angolan giraffe from a private game reserve, amazing that they still exist, back to communal land where only a few giraffe remained, and that will help repopulate. They call them four giraffe pioneers, and that will uh, allow tourism to flourish. She continues, securing a safe and sustainable present and future existence for giraffe involves a diverse range of conservation activities and approaches. Helping giraffe reclaim their rightful homes in Africa is an important part of such an approach, and it is achieved through translocations which involve moving giraffe to environments where they belong, which is uh, great. And this particular recent operation also served as a training exercise for eight young African wildlife veterinarians, and they learned things like giraffe immobilization, capture and translocation, as well as immobilization of several other wildlife species on the reserve. Giraffe Conservation Foundation is the only organization in the world that concentrates solely on the conservation and management of giraffe in the wild throughout Africa, giraffeconservation.org. You may have heard about this really ridiculous and sad story that happened at Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming a few weeks ago. A newborn bison calf, right, the cutest thing you can imagine, had to be killed, euthanized by the National Park Service after a visitor observed the struggling calf and picked up the calf and helped the calf get out of a swollen river. The calf had uh, become separated from its herd, and a, a man who was identified being in his 40s or 50s, wearing a blue shirt and black pants, they still haven't found him, jumped in the water and pushed the calf up onto the roadway. Uh, the calf was later killed by the park staff because it was abandoned by the herd and it was causing a hazardous situation by approaching cars and people along the roadway. Park regulations require that people stay at least 25 yards away from all wildlife, including bison and elk, and for bears and wolves, at least 100 yards away, you think? What will happen to this man if they find him? He could potentially face a misdemeanor charge, carrying a sentence of up to six months in jail and a $5,000 fine. Denver Animal Protection is reminding folks in Colorado to resist the urge to pet wild baby animals this spring. That is to help preserve wildlife and to avoid getting bitten and getting rabies. Wild animals account for over 90% of reported rabies in the country. The disease is spread mostly through bite wounds, has a 99.9% .9 mortality rate. We've talked about that. And that's why we take exposure so seriously. Just leave the wildlife alone. Of approximately 120,000 animals tested for rabies in the country each year, about 6% of those are found to be rabid, which I think is a very high percentage, don't you? Common scenario is when a person comes across 
what seems to be an abandoned animal, like a skunk, a rabbit, a bird, right? I don't think that's an issue here. Squirrels, foxes, raccoons, right? Usually, the mother is out foraging for food, and the animal is just going to be fine. So don't touch the uh, young animal and try to do anything. Uh, the animal, as noted earlier, might simply get rejected, and you might be hurt. Okay, so there's your reminder if you needed it. I really love this story. Have you heard about the Tyrannosaurus Rex estimate that was uh, published recently? This is just incredible because it just sparks your imagination of what the Earth must have been like back in those days. So a group of researchers have estimated, based upon scientific methods, which I will uh, describe just in a second, that as many as 2.5 billion T. rexes once stalked the Earth, not at the same time, but over the course of all of their uh, generations and their entire existence on the Earth. So in order to figure that out, they considered many factors and were able to estimate that about 20,000 adult T. rex individuals were roaming around at any one time, and that's from 68 to 65.5 million years ago, uh, with a plus or minus factor of 10. Some of the inputs into that estimate were the average age the T-Rex lived to and the age at which it reproduced. They had to estimate the T-Rex's metabolism, and they put that something in between that of a modern Komodo dragon and that of a modern lion. The age of sexual maturity, which they estimated about 15.5 years, the average body mass, and that and other information allowed them to calculate the duration of a T-Rex generation, which they came to be about 19 years. And they also calculated the population density of a T-Rex, one individual per 38 square miles. They had a range of about 888,000 square miles and overall lived for about 127,000 generations until they went extinct at the end of the Cretaceous period. Incredible. Now, one question raised and not answered, and maybe you guys know, where are all the T-Rex fossils? Fewer than 100 T-Rex individuals have been unearthed total, which is incredible. Where are they all? It's like, where are the aliens? Where are all the T-Rex uh, fossils? Another case of mad cow disease was detected in the United States by the surveillance program. There are two kinds of mad cow disease. Mad cow disease bovine spongiform encephalopathy, BSE. There is the kind that's transmissible, which affects the younger animals that eat infected materials such as meat or bone meal. And then there's the spontaneous kind, which affects the older animals. And uh, folks are not sure why that happens, but this uh, affected animal was identified and obviously uh, dealt with. But it makes you wonder still makes you wonder, even with their surveillance programs, how many of these cases are, uh, are getting through. Interesting disease, these uh, prion diseases, and the story about them is, is fascinating, and uh, how the idea was viewed with extreme skepticism when it was uh, uh, introduced. But now it's a fact, fascinating story, if you want to read about its discovery and prisoner. There have been a rash or a uh, 
rash of deaths and euthanizations related to the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness following. Uh, this cluster is always brings attention, but it's just like another day in uh, horse racing. The articles that talk about this, at least in the general press, oh, they refer to injuries and they implicate track condition or unknown causes or doping, etc. But really, the underlying theme is that this is just an unfortunate part of this celebrated, wonderful sort of enterprise. And the horses are beautiful. And yes, there's a lot of money involved and it could be a little better, but it just is what it is. And it's sad when it happens and we just move on, which is sort of tragic. The Humane Society of the United States love Kitty Block. She's a little... Uh, diplomatic on this one, calls for various sweeping reform measures. And, you know, our view is that the whole industry is unfixable and horse racing just should not exist. And we don't see a way to reform it to make it humane. And finally, for today, philosopher and ethicist Peter Singer uh, writes an interesting article in The Atlantic, and I guess everywhere, called The Meat Paradox. Vegetarianism is more popular than ever, but so is meat consumption. How can this be? And this article is a reflection, a sort of summary or update. It does serve to introduce the book he's working on or is about to publish called Animal Liberation Now, which uh, 50 years uh, later, after his book, Animal Liberation, which was published in 1975 when he was only 29 years old, uh, it's now 50 years on and he makes some reflections, some of which I think are, are notable here. He argued way back when in Animal Liberation that our treatment of animals was ethically unjustifiable and called for readers to stop eating meat. He did not call for veganism. He called for vegetarianism. He thought, he says, that it would just be too out there at that time to really make that proposal. And he was criticized for that, of course. But he wonders now, you know, how is it that there are more vegans and the consumption of meat is also higher and they both rise in the same society? In the United States, the per capita consumption of meat and poultry is 24% higher than it was in 1975. Americans are eating less beef, but more chicken and turkey. And he makes the point that that's not great because you've got more birds being killed, so more lives being created and killed to produce the meat. Ultimately, he states, and I'll quote this, my older, wiser, and reluctantly realistic self now accepts that most people can easily continue doing something they believe is wrong as long as they have plenty of company. I suspect that when these people say they agree with my views, what they're really saying is that they care about animal welfare and climate change, but they're not going to adjust their individual habits until everyone else does. And that leads him to state that he thinks the most powerful thing right now are policy and legislative choices and changes that voters will support. And he points to some of the recent legislation in California to improve the welfare of food animals. Another takeaway or another conclusion from Singer is that he seems to advocate, I mean, he writes, that lab-grown meat could be even more 
revolutionary than what we've seen in plant-based foods that taste and chew more like meat. Peter Singer, he is a pivotal figure in the uh, animal rights and animal welfare story and uh, worth knowing about. Okay, more with animals today after this break. For more than 60 years, the International Society for Animal Rights has been consistently fighting the battle against dog and cat overpopulation and advancing animal rights and law. ISAR is committed to saving animals' lives through ISAR's annual Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. To learn more about ISAR's programs, please visit their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. As listeners know, we advocate for the conservation and protection of animals in the wild, and we like to shed light on the many challenges animals face in the wild. So in honor of World Giraffe Day, which was June 21st, Peter, I thought we would learn about and test your knowledge on these beautiful creatures. Okay, I know a little about them. How many different species of giraffe Four. are there? How did you know that? Oh, I read. But can you name them? No. I knew you were going to ask me that, too, as the follow-up. <laughs> the Maasai, Southern, Northern, and Reticulated Giraffes. Okay. Of course, the Northern Giraffes live in the north part of Africa. The Southern species live in the southern part. And the other two species, Maasai and the Reticulated Giraffes, are happiest in the east. True or false? Giraffes are the tallest animals on the planet. I'm going to say true. That's true. What do you call the two short columnar um, protuberances on the head of the giraffe? Yes. A. Thank you. Papilla. B. Antlers. C. Ossicones. D. Buds. Oh, gee. So many good fake choice. I'll go with a word I've never heard before, ossicone. The ossicones is correct. Yeah. The ossicones of the giraffe, and these are on both the males and females, by the way, are made up of bony cores that develop first within the skin as a knob of cartilage, then later these ossicones ossify, becoming bone. Yeah, very cool. True or false? All giraffes have the same pattern of patches on them. No, false. No two giraffes have the same pattern. Their patchwork really depends on the species. What is a group of giraffes called? <laughs> That's so funny. A herd, a crash, right. a tower, or a flock? I'm going to go with a herd. A tower. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Do you remember what group of animals is called a crash? No, I don't remember. Rhinos. Oh, the male giraffes compete with each other for dominance by using which part or parts of their bodies? A, their back legs are used for kicking each other. B, they swing their long necks in order to butt heads with each other. C, they use their sharp teeth to go for their opponent's jugular veins. D, they use a kind of MMA technique called a triangle choke <laughs> in which they use their front legs to encircle their opponent's Long neck. Mm, I'm going to go with B. Something about necks, but not the uh, MMA flavor. 
That's correct. Okay. In an aggressive fight, giraffes throw punches with the force of their large necks to butt heads. And similar to species with horns or antlers, male giraffes use their ossicones as weapons during combat, where they use their heads essentially as clubs. And when fighting off predators like lions, giraffes use their legs to defend themselves with powerful kicks. But in general, Peter, giraffes are very peaceful animals, and they rarely fight with each other. That's good. What color is the giraffe's tongue? White, pink, purplish black. I think dark purplish black. Correct. Yeah. They say perhaps to protect against sunburn. Their long, muscular tongue, like up to 18 inches long, are used to grasp and manipulate objects and remove leaves and shoots from plants and trees. What is the giraffe's favorite food? Acacia leaves, fig leaves, or palm leaves? I'll go acacia. That's correct. Yeah. And they eat lots of them. And they are constantly eating and foraging. They are considered browsers not grazers, which means they mostly consume higher vegetation like leaves on tall trees instead of grass and low vegetation. That's interesting. I've never heard that term before. Thank you. Yeah. And speaking of their size, we know the giraffe is the tallest animal in the world. It's also the eighth heaviest land mammal. Take a guess. How much do you think the average adult giraffe weighs? Multiple choice? Uh, No. Okay. I'm going to say one and a half tons. Well, Actually, I think you're pretty close. Um, is it a ton? 2,000 pounds? How, I think, I think so. I think 2,000? American tons. 2,000 pounds? I think so. Okay. 3,000 pounds okay. is the answer. I was close. Close? You were right on. The answer is 3,000 pounds. Who can run faster? Hmm. A giraffe or a lion? I'll go, oh boy. I'll go with, in the sprinting category, the lion. Yes. Giraffes can run about, or up to, I should say, 35 miles per hour. The giraffe's main predator is the lion, which can accelerate to almost 50 miles per hour. However, the giraffe uses his great height and excellent eyesight to spot a predator like a lion as far as half a mile away so we can get a head start on the run. Also, lions are really short-distance sprinters, so they can't sustain their top speed for a long time. Now, hyenas... Another top predator, the giraffe, their top speed is about the same as the giraffe, about 35 miles per hour, but the hyenas hunt cooperatively, meaning they can work together to bring down a giraffe, since a single hyena is probably not strong enough to take down a giraffe. Yes, Mother Nature can be very cruel. That's right. Peter, according to the Center for Biological Diversity, giraffe populations have declined nearly 40% in the past three decades because of habitat loss, civil unrest, poaching, and human-caused habitat changes. The international trade in giraffe parts, bone carving, skin, and trophies put additional pressure on these iconic animals. Very sad. And let me just make a comment here about these incredible, complex animals who are imprisoned in zoos. According to Born Free USA, as of 2020, there are at least 579 captive giraffe at 103 zoos throughout North America and more than 800 in European zoos, including at least 150 in UK. From the Born Free Foundation, while giraffes are specialized herbivores living complex lives and roaming over large expanses, so being confined to small enclosures can lead to extreme frustration and boredom. Captive giraffes often exhibit abnormal behaviors such as repeatedly twisting their necks 
or licking the bars of their cage. Okay, so June 21st was World Draft Day. This day was initiated by a Draft Conservation Foundation to highlight the problems draft face in their natural habitat. Today, drafts are listed as vulnerable to extinction on the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species. Here are a couple things you can do to help protect draft. Educate people on how and why we should protect drafts. Support sustainable agriculture and settlement practices near giraffe habitats. Remember, they love acacia trees, so we need to reforce key areas with their primary food source. This is critical. Donate to organizations that are directly working in these areas. We need to stop the poaching of giraffes for their parts, like their tails. There are organizations that are working to outlaw the sale of animal products and body parts. Also, find and support, if you can, these anti-poaching organizations in Africa. I know in Kruger National Park in South Africa, they spend over $13.5 million annually on anti-poaching and have highly trained and dedicated anti-poaching forces. Here's a big one and an easy one. Don't support zoos. Who wants to see these beautiful wild animals depressed and stressed out and bored and confined in unnatural environments? That's not education. That's not conservation. That's just clear-cut cruelty. We'll be right back. If a dog has bitten a person and the animal shelter in California is aware of this information, then the shelter must disclose this knowledge prior to allowing someone to adopt the dog. This is California's new dog bite law. Here are my thoughts about this and my reaction to the prior discussion we had with legal dog bite expert Ken Phillips. Dogs bite. Just because a dog has bitten someone doesn't necessarily mean that dog is vicious or a bad dog or a reason to destroy that dog. Dogs bite when they're protecting their property Dogs bite trying to protect their owner. They can bite trying to protect themselves or their food or toys. They might bite when they're harassed or provoked. They can bite when they're frightened or scared. I've been bitten by dogs. I was bitten when I picked up an injured dog in the middle of the road. He was bleeding, he had broken bones, and he was scared and in pain. Is that a justified bite? You bet it was. I was bitten by my own dog when we were caught in a situation where my dog was trying to protect me. An unintended, inadvertent bite, I would call it, but it happens. My nephew was bitten by a dog while he was petting a dog. We later found out that the dog had a severe, untreated ear infection, and my nephew touched the dog on his sensitive, painful ear. Does that mean that dog's a bad dog? Should we punish that dog for hurting my nephew? I have a friend whose dog bit a young boy who jumped in the yard to retrieve his basketball. Dog was protecting his property. Do you think that's justified? Should the dog be punished for that? Legally speaking, would the dog be punished for that? So someone relinquishes their dog to the shelter and says, my dog bites. Now the shelter workers in California have to disclose to any potential adopter that this dog bites. Shelter workers should be honest if he or she knows something about the dog's history. They should disclose what they know. I absolutely agree with that. But is it really fair to the dog to simply say, 
this dog has bitten someone without disclosing the circumstances behind that bite. I mean, by saying this dog bites, you automatically stigmatize that dog. Some people would indeed equate a dog that bites to a vicious dog. If a shelter worker says to you, okay, before you adopt this dog, legally I need to tell you that this dog has bitten in the past. Most everyone, I would imagine, would not want to adopt that dog. If the shelter worker said to me, this dog is a bite history, I'd say, okay, dogs bite. What's the circumstances behind that bite? They would likely say, I don't know, because it's impossible for the truth to be known. But I'm not sure I'd want to adopt that dog either without knowing more information. And you know what happens to that dog? In all likelihood, that dog is deemed unadoptable. And in many U.S. shelters, the dog is destroyed. So, wow. We didn't even know the truth behind the bite, and we didn't even want to give that dog the benefit of the doubt, and yet the dog doesn't have a chance for a home, does he? If I'm told by the school principal that my child punched another kid, I need to know a little more information about what transpired. I don't think my child would just punch a kid for no reason. Was it justified? Maybe my child was being bullied, so he punched the bully. For a shelter to be forced by law to make public that a dog bites without any additional information just seems a little unfair. That's all I'm saying here. And it's impossible for the shelter workers to know the true facts surrounding a dog bite or if the dog even really bit someone. But now in two states, they are forced to pass along and make public any information told to them by anyone about a dog. Say someone relinquishes a dog to a shelter because they say this dog nipped their baby. Now that shelter worker says to a potential adopter, hey, this dog's a baby biter. You know that dog's never going to be adopted. If I heard this, my first thought would be, why is this dog, any dog, allowed to be in close proximity to a baby? And what happened? Who's the owner? And where was the owner? Perhaps this dog is not a good fit for this particular family with a baby. Should this one incident make it so the dog loses all chances of getting into a home and becoming part of someone's family? Should we destroy the dog because all we know is that we heard from someone that this dog nipped a baby? I don't know. Do we destroy dogs for nipping babies regardless of the owner's stupidity and the circumstances that led up to the bite? Now, from the perspective of the shelter workers, they know if they disclose to a potential adopter that a dog bites, it's very likely the dog will never get adopted. So depending on that shelter's policies, they might automatically deem that dog unadoptable or vicious, and the dog gets killed. I have known, and I've worked with many shelter staff, and despite what some people think, they don't enjoy killing dogs. Most of the shelter workers and rescue groups I've worked with try really hard to match a particular dog with the right kind of family. And that's the key here, isn't it? With any adoption of a dog or a cat to a new home and family, the shelter workers and rescue groups need to take a good history and interview the potential adopter, which not all shelters do. There are some shelters that will adopt out any dog to any person who wants that dog. I know a shelter that adopted an energetic, strong, big puppy who grew to be an 80-pound dog to a 91-year-old man who lives alone. 
You think that 90-year-old, who depends on a cane, by the way, will be able to adequately socialize and exercise the dog and offer the dog the stimulation that a puppy needs? And what will happen when this big, strong, energetic puppy accidentally hurts the man or pulls the man to the ground on a morning walk? Or what happens to the dog when the 91-year-old dies tomorrow? Not so smart of the shelter worker and very selfish of the man who wanted a puppy. I mean, what the hell was he thinking? So shelters need to ask questions. Do you live alone? Do you have other pets? Do you have kids? How old are your kids? Have you owned a dog before? If so, what happened to that dog? Did you get your prior dogs fixed or vaccinated? If not, why? Can you afford food for the dog? Where are you going to keep the dog? Tied up in the backyard or home all day while you're working? A lot of information about you and your lifestyle need to be known to assist in making a good match. Generally speaking, shelters and rescue groups want you to be happy with the animal you adopt from them. They want you to be happy with your new family member. They want it to be a lifelong loving home for the animal. They don't want you to return the dog back to them because it didn't work out or the dog wasn't the right fit. Every shelter and rescue group should have a dog adoption questionnaire and an an adoption process and spend a little time trying to make a good match. Unfortunately, many of them don't. Recently, Peter and I were walking at the street fair with one of our dogs, Skye. We got Skye from a shelter, and this was not from a no-kill shelter. And she's a pit bull. And yes, our shelters are overwhelmed with pit bulls. The shelter we obtained Skye from, more than 70% of the dogs there were pit bulls or pit bull mixes. Pretty much the rest of the dogs were chihuahuas. So yes, our shelters are overflowing with pits because they're being bred to death, literally. Because we are destroying these particular dogs because there's just too many of them. What a shame. What a shame we breed dogs. What a shame breeders exist. So had we not adopted Skye, she would likely have been killed by the shelter. Anyway, we're at the street fair and we came across a woman with a golden retriever. Oh, they're such nice dogs, aren't they? Much nicer than our vicious pit bulls. Well, this golden retriever was on a leash held by a woman, lunged toward and growled at our Skye. It was obvious the dog wanted to go after Skye. And this woman almost lost hold of her leash when her dog nearly pulled her to the ground when he was lunging. Thankfully, nothing bad happened. This woman scolded her dog and was trying to control him as we quickly scooted in the other direction. And this was a crowded place, so there were many people who observed this incident. And people around us, and we especially, were relieved that what potentially could have been a horrible scene was not. Then a few people sort of chuckled and looked at us and made friendly, joking comments because to them, it was sort of a funny situation to see that a pit bull was almost attacked by a golden retriever because that's the mindset of most people. The pit bull is the bad dog and the golden is the good dog. Let's say the golden retriever did get loose from her owner and attacked our dog. Now there's a dog fight and inevitably someone, dog, human, someone is going to get hurt. So who's liable for any bodily damage either dog does to someone? And how many ways can the story be told and interpreted? I relinquish Skye back to the shelter, hypothetical here, of course, and I tell the shelter workers, my pit bull dog bit another dog, a golden retriever, but this golden instigated the entire fight. Do you think the shelter will believe my story? Now that shelter in California 
is legally obligated to tell the bite history of Skye to any potential adopter. Hey, before you adopt this pit bull, I need to tell you he has a bite history. Oh, what happened? A golden retriever bit this dog, so the pit bull bit him back. Will people believe that? Now, let's say the woman with the golden retriever relinquishes her dog to the shelter because the breeder who she purchased the dog from is not going to take that dog back because breeders don't do that. Breeders breed dogs for profit, and the hardworking shelters and rescue groups are the dumping grounds for unwanted dogs that breeders produce. So this woman takes her golden to the shelter and says, my dog was bitten by a pit bull. Aha! Now that's a believable story. How would you define a dangerous dog? Don't go away. We're going to talk about that when we come back. You're listening to Animals Today. Hi, it's Lori Kirshner from Animals Today, and here's your Animals Today Minute. Xylitol is a sweetener that is commonly used in sugar-free gum and candy, toothpaste, mouthwash, baked goods, and chewable vitamins. Xylitol is safe for humans, but can be extremely toxic to dogs. Luckily, cats do not seem to be interested in eating foods with xylitol. But in dogs, even small amounts of xylitol can cause hypoglycemia, that's low blood sugar, seizures, liver failure, and even death. The effects can appear as quickly as 10 minutes after ingestion. If your dog has eaten a xylitol-containing item, bring him or her to your veterinarian or emergency animal hospital immediately, even if there's no symptoms yet. He or she should be monitored there for 12 to 24 hours just to be safe. Also, please be aware that some nut butters now have xylitol as an added ingredient, so check your labels. And of course, don't let your dogs get at your chewing gum and mints. These are serious dangers causing the FDA to release a consumer alert on the risks to dogs, which you can read at fda.gov consumer. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner with your Animals Today Minute for the day. You wouldn't want to put a mattress on the ground so why do we make our furry children sleep on floor beds that gather dust and dirt? Pets are our babies. Let Fousey help you lift them up. Recently, we got the Fousey bed for our two dogs and they love it. The Fousey bed is a new type of elevated pet bed that lifts your furry family off the floor with a sleek, metal, chew-resistant base and provides comfort and support with an uber-plush, washable bolster bed that attaches on top. Say goodbye to frumpy floor beds and hello to height, style, and comfort with the Fousey Bed, the ultimate pet bed for your number one fur child. Visit FouseyPets.com, that's F-U-Z-I-P-E-T-S.com to learn more. Welcome back to Animals Today. I do believe there are dogs that are dangerous. Is it the dog's fault the dog is dangerous or vicious? He or she wasn't born vicious because all dogs are good dogs. It's always the owner who made the dog into a bad dog or a vicious dog. But what's the definition of vicious anyway? Vicious might have its own legal definition. But it seems to me that the definition of vicious or dangerous is purely subjective, right? I mean, what I think is a vicious dog might be different than what you think is a vicious dog and different than the person who was attacked by a dog when she was a child thinks is a vicious dog. In addition, 
Maybe that dog's only dangerous in a given situation or environment or around certain kinds of people. We had a wonderful dog, Paco. Paco didn't like people who spoke the Spanish language. Paco was not a dangerous dog. Paco was not a racist dog. But we just made sure that the Spanish language was not spoken around Paco. And I'm just assuming Paco was abused by a person who spoke Spanish. And that's the point. If you know a dog is not comfortable in a given situation or environment and or you do not approve of the dog's behavior in a given environment or around certain people or other dogs, you might have to make some adjustments in your lifestyle to keep your dog and your family and everyone around you safe and happy. It's not hard, maybe a little inconvenient, but so what? That's life, and that's what you do. So, we're talking about the definition of a dangerous dog. Purely subjective. And you know, even shelters have their own definition of a dangerous dog. A lot of shelters have what's called temperament testing to determine if dogs are dangerous or vicious in certain situations. And other shelters don't use any sort of method of testing or evaluation. They might deem a dog vicious by the dog's bite history or whatever random indiscriminate means they choose. And not all shelter employees are experienced with dog behavior. And you might just be dealing with a scared dog who was recently picked up off the streets and who was lost from his home. And that dog might very well cower in the corner or growl at anyone who enters his kennel. Or maybe the dog was in an abusive situation and, again, might not want to trust or be kind to you or any human initially. Are these vicious dogs? No, they're scared. And they're certainly not going to do well on any temperament test or any sort of evaluation given by a complete stranger. My own dogs, if lost from me and picked up and thrown into a loud, scary shelter cage, would likely fail any tests and might very well be deemed vicious or dangerous. And realistically, who's going to want to adopt a dog who is labeled vicious anyway? Yeah, the dog is probably not vicious by your standards, but you're not going to want to adopt that dog. And you certainly have to question the motives of the adopter who wants to adopt a dog labeled as vicious. What's he going to do with that dog? Use him as a fighting dog? Sell him to a research lab? I don't know. But the thing is, for the most part, from my experience, shelters don't adopt out dogs that they think are truly vicious. And it boils down to what your definition of vicious is. I know there are exceptions, okay? But I don't see shelters adopting out dogs that they think will turn around and hurt other people or animals. Now, having said that, there have been a few instances I'm aware of where dogs should not have been released to the public at the time they were. I'm not saying these dogs were vicious. What I'm saying is more training or socialization or rehabilitation should have been offered to that dog and then reassessed establishing this dog is okay to be adopted out to a given person or family. And by the way, this is an entirely different topic we can talk about another time, but earlier in the show, the term no-kill shelter was mentioned. And you might know this already, but just because a shelter claims they are no-kill doesn't mean they never kill a dog. I know it might sound like a misleading term if a shelter describes itself as a no-kill shelter and they kill a dog, but some shelters might say they are no-kill, and that usually means they strive for that, okay? 
I mean, they might be situations where they do kill a dog. Like if a dog is suffering and essentially untreatable, like a dog was hit by a car and has internal bleeding and broken bones and barely breathing, of course, any humane shelter would euthanize that dog. Now that's the real definition of euthanasia, by the way, taking an individual out of its misery. Now, I will tell you that what often happens in these no-kill shelter settings, since they strive not to kill animals unless they have to, unfortunately, you get some dogs and cats there in that shelter for a very long time, and they can develop extreme kennel stress and anxiety from their lengthy stays. Just like any individual cooped up in a small place with little stimulation for a long time will go a little stir-crazy. Again, this doesn't make the dog a dangerous dog. So what's the bottom line? Our country still has millions of homeless dogs and cats that are in need of a loving forever home. We are still killing millions of unwanted animals in our shelters every year. Don't buy a dog from a breeder, okay? If you're wanting to add a dog or cat to your family, consider visiting your local shelter. Check out the animals just waiting there to be a part of your family. And if you end up adopting from a shelter, in all likelihood, you'll be saving a life. And that's a good thing. And dogs bite. And let's not conflate a dog that bites with a vicious or dangerous dog. My parents' little 12-pound rescued Maltese chiclet would bite certain individuals who would approach my mother. Is chiclet a vicious dog? No! Little fluffy white chiclet is not a vicious dog and would never be labeled vicious. But if my mother had a pit bull and that same person approached her and the pit bull was trying to protect my mother, that's a different story. That dog's vicious. And we all know why this is the case. Number one, Larger dogs can do more damage when they bite than smaller dogs, just on the basis of their size of their mouth and teeth. And number two, pit bulls have a bad rap. And that's because many people are misinformed about pit bulls. Given the same situation and under the same circumstances, why are certain dog breeds automatically deemed vicious and others are not? Two little dogs the size of a large rat have bitten the nose of one of our large dogs minding his own business. Who's the vicious one? Maybe no one. Dogs bite. A woman asked her veterinarian, is there any chance my dog will bite someone? The veterinarian's response was, does it have teeth? Thanks for tuning in to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.